Millennial friends and uh, others that are joining us today by, by live stream, we're, we're so glad to get to fellowship together in this way. You know, throughout our lives, most of us will have several different jobs, and for sure, we're going to have plenty of varying assignments, and some of those are going to be really fun, and some of those are going to be not so much. You know, uh, for me, at the top of the list, probably, on the f- list of fun jobs was a job I had one summer in college where I worked at a factory where we made Snickers bars, and, and we could eat as many as we wanted. And, you know, I was still in an age where I was burning more calories than I could possibly eat. So it was awesome. I mean, next to heaven, that's pretty close. You know, on the list of not-so-awesome jobs was being responsible for paying 15,000 IBM employees every week. So, you know, there's, there's just nothing like getting a phone call in the middle of the night because some guy working the third shift discovered that his paycheck was off by a few bucks, and he just couldn't wait to let me know about it. That one wasn't so fun. But listen, you know, throughout my career, uh, I've also been involved in fundraising. I've sat on boards where we've planned fundraising campaigns. I've trained missionaries how to do fundraising. I've had the privilege of uh, speaking for several fundraising dinners. And, you know, most of us wouldn't associate the word fun with fundraising, But when you're talking about raising funds for things that God cares about, it's actually pretty exciting because you have the chance to see God at work. Well, the scripture that we are going to explore today from 2 Corinthians deals with a fundraising campaign. Paul is leading this effort. It's it's essentially a relief project for the poor. Now, when we think about Paul, we think about Paul the Evangelist, or as he liked to call himself, Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles. But at times, throughout his ministry, Paul also wore the hat of fundraiser, and we see this in several of his letters. So what we have in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is Paul giving these detailed instructions about taking up a large offering. In fact, this is the most extended treatment on the topic of giving in the whole New Testament. But to say that these chapters are about giving is a a little bit misleading because the themes are much broader than that. This is a passage about being the body. It's a passage about our unity in Christ. It's a passage that talks about the dynamic of grace in the life of the believer. All of that included in these instructions about receiving an offering. Now, now when I was a kid, the instructions for receiving an offering went like this. The pastor got up and he said, and now the ushers will come forward to receive the tithes and offerings, you know. And that was it. Well, look, There's just a little bit more theology that's crammed into Paul's instructions on taking up an offering. 
So you, you might want to just kind of buckle up here. Now, let me first give a little bit of background so we can see what's going on in this passage more clearly. What's happening here is the Apostle Paul is writing some people in Corinth, a, a church that he had planted. He's encouraging them to participate in this multi-church offering, and uh, he wants them to be really generous. The offering is going to go to some very poor Jewish believers that lived in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was a long way from Greece. I mean, can you, you picture it? It's way down on the southeastern rim of the Mediterranean Sea. What had happened was, in the years prior to Paul writing these letters to the Corinthians, the area around Jerusalem had had a series of bad harvest. Now, the Jewish believers in the church in Jerusalem were already poor, so this just made matters much worse. And Paul had grown up in this city. This is where he was trained as a rabbi. He knew about this, and, and he was concerned. Jerusalem, of course, was a center for Judaism. It was also the center of early Christianity. But aside from being a religious center, the city of Jerusalem really wasn't all that significant. But you couldn't say the same thing about Corinth. Now, we're talking about 1,500 miles or more away from Jerusalem. In Paul's day, Corinth was a thriving city. And Pastor Carl talked a little bit about this when we began this sermon series. To the Romans, Corinth was much more significant than nearby Athens. And part of its significance had to do with its strategic location. You see, there was a lot of trade that went back and forth between Italy and Asia during these days. And uh, it, it all took place, for the most part, obviously by sea. And if you went entirely by sea, it was a long journey that took you around the southern end of the Greek peninsula. While these waters to the south of Greece, at least part of the year, were quite treacherous. So if you look at where Corinth is, Corinth is located on this little strip of land that joins the mainland of Greece with the, what we call the Peloponnesian Peninsula. It has a gulf on either side. And so what seafarers figured out was that if you sailed into one of these gulfs and then you took the goods off your ships, you moved it over land a few miles, but on a paved road, and then put them back to sea, you saved time, you saved money, and it was less risky. And so this is the primary reason why Corinth prospered. What they did was they taxed this commerce and they grew rich. Now, the city of Corinth was also like, well, in some ways, like a big American city today. And what I mean by that is that they were crazy about sports. Every two years, they had their own set of Olympic-like games, and they celebrated this. If you look at their artwork, for example, uh, you can find, you know, vases like this one where you've got, you know, celebration of these athletes. These happen to be runners. Uh, and just an aside, I, I have no idea who the trainer was for these guys, but I think uh, 
a little bit too much work on the quads and not enough on the calves to look a little bit out of balance to you. But also, if you look at this picture that I took uh, of ancient Corinth, and I know this would be kind of difficult to see, but you can find paving stones from the day where there are depressions in the rock. And this is where sprinters would lock their toes in prior to race, kind of like we would use blocks today. So they loved sports. They also loved entertainment, just as our culture does. In fact, they had two theaters. Uh, this is the ruins of the larger of the two theaters. And not particularly impressive in terms of how they were preserved. You can certainly find theaters better preserved than this one. But let me just try to describe why this one's so impressive. Most theaters of the day, you found a big hill, so, and you worked with the slope of the hillside, and you just put your theater right into it. Not so in Corinth. They had a little bit of a hill, but most of this structure went above ground several levels. It looked more like a modern-day stadium. This theater could seat 18,000 people. Now, why would you need a theater that could seat 18,000 people? Well, because they loved entertainment. They loved their shows, you know. What was one of their favorite shows? It had to have been my big, fat Greek wedding, you know. Pretty sure that was at the top of the list. So you got to have a big theater, you know. It was also a religious city. They worshipped a number of pagan gods. You can still see remnants of uh, temples to these gods. What we need to realize is that religion in the Greco-Roman world, it wasn't about having a relationship with God. It wasn't about the, the moral need to care for the welfare of others. It was just one more way designed to help you prosper. You prayed to the gods, you made sacrifices so that you could be enriched and prosper in life. So what about this church that Paul planted in what we call ancient Corinth? Well, the church there, at least for a few decades, continued to reflect both the demographics and the values of the city. Now, what I mean by the demographics is this. I've already said that Corinth was a prosperous city. The church in Corinth, from what we can tell by Paul's letters and other information, probably had a greater share of members from the what we would call the middle class than most other churches of the day. Because in that day, the vast, vast majority of Christians were very, very poor. And when Paul planted the church in Corinth, it wasn't like the values of the city just magically disappeared. You know, you step into the congregation and everything changes. Rebecca was pointing that out last week, wasn't she? One historian said this, this young church continued to reflect the city's spirit of materialism, pride, and self-serving religiosity. Now, does that description sound just a little bit familiar? Materialism, pride, self-serving religion? Some critics would say that America's version of Christianity today is a lot closer to Corinth than it is Christ. And so this means that we need to read Paul's letters to the Corinthians with the Bible in one hand and a mirror in the other. How do we as American Christians see ourselves in this young church 
that continued to struggle to grasp the full dimensions of our new life in Christ and how radically different that is than the non-Christian culture around us. So that brings us again then to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Now, in earlier correspondence with the church, Paul had already brought up this idea of a relief offering. The Corinthians said, yeah, count us in. So why does he bring it up again in 2 Corinthians? Well, because they hadn't made their gift yet. And so in these chapters, Paul is writing them. Again, he's encouraging them to follow through to make this gift, and he wants them to be generous. So what he's doing in these chapters is he's trying to inspire them. He's trying to get them to make this gift. He's doing it in two ways. First of all, he's going to use the inspiring example of some other churches nearby in the area we call Macedonia that already made their contribution. They had already made this super generous gift to this offering. And then the second thing he's going to do is he's going to talk very directly to the Corinthians because he's trying to help them understand how giving as a Christian is different than how they're thinking about it. I think what Paul is doing is he's anticipating questions that were likely in the minds of the Corinthians. I think they're the same kind of questions that many people would have today if they were asked to give in similar circumstances. First, the why. Why in the world should people in Corinth care about poor believers in Jerusalem so far away. Look, they didn't know these people. They probably didn't know their names. And they knew as these Gentiles with what we would call a Hellenistic cultural background, they were way different than these Jewish believers. The Jews were a different race, a different ethnicity. They had a very different cultural background. So I can imagine some of these young believers in Corinth listening to Paul and saying, Paul, what do they have to do with us? Okay, I understand they got a problem, but how in the world does that relate to us? And then secondly, the question of how. In other words, how is this giving really supposed to work? I, I need you to go over this one more time. Paul, you're asking us to be really generous, but what if next year, we're the ones in crisis, and we've given away all of our spare resources to the church in Jerusalem. Doesn't God want us to care for ourselves? So let's see how Paul addresses these questions. First, the question of why. Why care about poor Christians living in Jerusalem? We need to remember that this letter we call 2 Corinthians is actually part of a whole series of correspondence and visits that took place between Paul and the church in Corinth. And earlier in the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul's already begun to answer this question of why. He's already begun to tell the Corinthians, look, when you came to Christ, God made you a part of something, and you need to understand what that is and what it means. He's been teaching them earlier about what it means to be the church. So let's take a peek at the teaching from 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 12. It says this, For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, 
slave or free. Now picking up with verse 24. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So here Paul is saying that all believers, regardless of, our dist- uh, of the differences between us, regardless of the distance between us, we've been made in Christ, uh, one in Christ. There's no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer slave or free. He's talking about social status. In other places, he says, there's no longer male or female, even these gender differences. Obviously, we are different, but Paul's trying to say, in Christ, we've been made one. The divisions fall. So here's why we care about poor Christians living on the other side of the world, because in Christ, they are our brothers and sisters. In Christ, we've been made one big family. We're one body. So now we come back to 2 Corinthians in this teaching about giving. Paul's still trying to answer this question, why, for the Corinthians. He starts out with the example of the Macedonians, and now he's going to help us see how they thought about it, how they answered the question, why, starting with verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. The Macedonians considered this offering, this opportunity to give, to be a privilege. Now, why did they think about it that way? Again, look at this phrase where Paul says, they pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. Now, the the Greek word that gets translated sharing there is the word koinonia. It means fellowship. The Macedonians believed that in giving, they were actually fellowshipping. They were fellowshipping with other churches that were participating in this offering. They were fellowshipping with the Apostle Paul as he organized it. They were fellowshipping with the Jewish Christians as they were meeting their needs. So aside from being obedient to helping parts of the body that were suffering, the Macedonians believed that this act actually enriched their fellowship in Christ. We don't normally associate giving with fellowship, but let me just let you in on a little spiritual secret. Giving has a lot more to do with fellowship than donuts and coffee do. So maybe we should be the ones to reframe our thinking around the truth of Scripture. So fellowship is one reason. The need is certainly another. And now Paul says, look, it, here's what I expect the result of this gift to be. And this is really cool. When you flip the next chapter, Corinthians uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 12, now look at what's said. He said, 
to the Corinthians, this service that you perform, talking about the offering, is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Verse 14, and in their prayers for you, he's talking about the Jerusalem believers, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace that God has given you. So you can see here, Paul expects that there's going to be a greater heart connection. That's talking about enriching the fellowship. And what else? It results in praise and thanksgiving to God. So through our giving, it's, it's as if we are worshiping the Lord. One final motivation, one final reason that Paul thinks the Corinthians ought to give. He wants them to ask themselves the question, how in the world did you become believers in the first place? How did it happen? Well, it happened because there were some Jews in Jerusalem who had come to Christ who thought that this wonderful news was worth sharing with the rest of the world. So Paul thought these Gentile believers in Corinth, they had a debt of gratitude. They owed it to these first Jewish believers. And in fact, when Paul is later writing to the Romans, to the church at Rome, in chapter 15, this is what he says. Let's look at this text. He says, For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in their material blessings. So what about us? Let me just ask us a few questions, and then we'll think about how we might apply this text. First one is this. Are we appropriately responding to the Bible's teaching about our oneness in the body? about caring for parts of the body that are suffering materially or otherwise? Do we consider it a privilege to care for other parts of the body? And then next, are we thinking about this on a big enough scale? What I mean is not just thinking about our own church fellowship, but beyond that. Let me just suggest a few simple ways that that we could respond to this, thinking of it in terms of this passage. First of all, you know, Paul cared about the church in Corinth. He cared about their needs as a community. And listen, Centennial, our church, we have a fund. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but we have a fund we call the Benevolence Fund. And its purpose is to care for material needs of people in our body who might be in a crisis of some sort. And look, it's super easy to give directly to that fund. You know, if you just go to the church's website under the kind of the giving tab or on the Alexio app, when you want to make a gift, it's going to ask you, how do you want to designate it? And you can choose the Benevolence Fund and make a gift. Can I just be bold here and say, I think all of us should be making contributions to this fund at least every year. I don't know what you're capable of giving. I'm sure some of you are already giving generously, and I commend you. But look, what if we all did? What if, what if by the end of the day we, we all made a gift to that? Can you imagine the blessing that that would be to people in our fellowship? And you know what? At some point, you might be the person in a crisis. So consider that. And then let's think about people that aren't a part of our fellowship. What about our community? You know, there are whole ministries that exist to do this same kind of thing in our community. 
And Centennial, we already partner with some of these local ministries. I think of Love, Inc. I think of Mile High Ministries. So I hope you realize, as, as you make a gift to the church, a part of it is going to support these kind of ministries in our community. But don't let that stop you. You know, like some people say, I gave at the office. Don't just say, well, I give to my church, you know. It's fine to go beyond that. Maybe you know about some excellent ministry doing that kind of thing that we don't currently partner with. So make a gift. And then I think the heart of this passage today would challenge us to lift our eyes beyond our own context. What about Christians in other parts of the world, people we don't know, people we can't see? Listen, just as in the days of the Roman Empire, today there are a lot of poor Christians. The Global Center for Christianity says that in 2020, the number of Christians who are either slum dwellers or categorized among the urban poor would total to almost 1.3 billion people. Friends, that's more than half the global church. These people are lacking things like clean water and nutrition and housing and, and medical care. And again, through our own church's global ministry partners, we're supporting some ministries that with part of what they do, they're ministering to those kinds of needs. But look, we could do way more than that. So I just encourage you, be creative. Think outside the box, you know. Do you know about a need? Do you have a connection to some part of the world? Is there something God has laid on your heart? You know, with, with part of my time, I serve as a director for a ministry called Search Party. You know, you could check it out, searchparty.org. And the primary thrust of our ministry is to do evangelism and disciple-making among refugees. But at this point in history, we're also doing some relief work. We're providing food to families that have been severely impacted by the pandemic in southern Italy. So these are people that are unemployed now because of the pandemic. They don't qualify for any relief from the government, and they didn't have anything to begin with. So, you know, if you're interested in knowing more about that need and opportunity, just, just reach out to me. But lastly, let's consider this idea of spiritual indebtedness. Paul thought these Gentile believers were indebted to those first Jewish Christians. What about you? What, what people, what ministries has God used in your life? And, and what would it look like to return a blessing out of your gratitude? Give that some thought. Well, let's move to the next question now that Paul anticipates. How does giving work in God's economy? Again, Paul's going to show us something through the example of these Macedonian believers. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 again. Verse 1, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now verse 5, And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. 
Now, I think Paul is trying to show us the foundation for Christian giving. Your bank account is not the foundation. The need of others is not the foundation. The foundation for generous Christian giving is our relationship with God. And in these verses, we see both sides of that relationship in action. Again, look at verse 5. The Macedonians gave themselves first of all to the Lord. The word first here doesn't mean chronologically. It means first in importance. So in other words, for the Macedonians, their, their highest priority, it was not what they gave to God. It was that they gave themselves to God. They devoted themselves to the Lord's use. See, the important thing was not what the Macedonians had. The important thing was that God had them. God didn't need their money. God owns everything in the first place. It was their overflowing joy. This rich generosity, it all came out of this relationship with God. So listen, God doesn't want your money. God wants you. And if your heart's not right with the Lord, it doesn't matter how much you give in offerings. Just look at the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1, where the, God says through the prophet, stop bringing me your gifts. Your gifts are making me sick because your hearts are not right. Jesus said the same things, didn't he, about the scribes and Pharisees, where giving was all about a show. It did not emanate from their relationship with God. So here's the first point. God-pleasing generosity comes out of a heart that is devoted to God. And then we see the other side of the relationship, right? In verse 1, Paul says that God gave something to the Macedonians. Look again. He said, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. God had given the Macedonians grace, and it overflowed, it flowed through them to others. Now, the supreme example of the grace that God has given to us is seen in Christ. Think about this. Paul, Paul points the Corinthians to this truth. He doesn't want them to miss this. It's so foundational. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might be rich. This is speaking about the incarnation, where Christ laid aside the riches of his heavenly existence, humbled himself, was born into our world, suffered unjustly, so that we might be enriched with the fullness of his salvation. When we let go of part of what we have in order to bless others, we're simply emulating what Christ has already done for us. The cross is the ultimate symbol of self-giving generosity. Let me say that again. The cross is the ultimate symbol 
of self-giving generosity. And we need to hold that image before our eyes as we consider what God's love calls for in our world today. Zinzendorf was a church and missions leader in the 18th century. He reflected on the example of Christ, and he wrote this to members of the church. He said, it's very important that the brethren should labor everywhere in the true spirit of community, not seeking their own advantage, but that of the whole church, to consult our own ease at the very time we are sending hundreds of missionaries into all parts of the world in the midst of poverty and distress. And while the church altogether is so poor, would be an affront to the cross of Jesus. Did you get that? Let me just paraphrase it. What he says is that to, to work to make our own comfort our main goal in life, given the great need and the great cost of spreading the gospel, given the fact that our brothers in Christ around the world are so terribly poor, that would be like standing in front of Jesus as he hung upon the cross and insulting him. Christ-like love demands our joyful and our sacrificial service of others. So consider the Macedonians' example. I think the Macedonians got it. I think they understood the way giving works in the kingdom of God. And it is radically different than secular philanthropy. Let me tell you about how a non-Christian is, is forced to think about charitable giving. For a non-Christian, giving is like a zero-sum game. I give you money, now you've got more, and I've got less. So what have I gained by making myself poorer? Well, maybe there's emotional satisfaction in, in helping to meet a need. Maybe, maybe it just seems like the right thing to do. You know, it's, it's a good moral choice to help others. Or maybe there's a sense of, uh, it's appropriate. You know, I, I've been so fortunate in life you know, I should, out of gratitude, help people who are less fortunate. Now, that's pretty much how secular giving works. And I don't want to disparage any of those motivations. They're pointed in the right direction, but they lack the foundational realities that inspire and enable Christian giving. For the Christian, we operate in a completely different paradigm. For the Christian, expressing love through giving is not a zero-sum game. Jesus alludes to this in the Sermon on the Mount, where in Matthew 6, remember what he said? We no longer have to be consumed with our own material welfare. Why? Because our Heavenly Father is going to look after those things. God wants to free us. So instead of worrying about that, we can focus on the priorities of his kingdom. So what Paul does here in 2 Corinthians, he just takes that truth and he draws out the implications for Christian generosity. And guys, you just have to try to let this sink in. These promises are so incredible. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with verse 8, and just try to take this in. 
and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now, we need to be careful not to misinterpret this text. This is not a promise that God will make you rich with money. This is a promise that God will enable your generosity, that He's going to always give you the capacity to do good works that bring Him glory, and there's no limits. I can think of stories of godly men and women who laid hold of these promises they did wonderful ministry for other people that cost lots of money, but they themselves were never materially rich. I think, for example, of John Wesley and William Carey and George Mueller and Annie Armstrong. If these names are unfamiliar to you, you know, after the message, you need to take just a little bit of time, Google them, and learn a little bit about their lives. Each of these people made huge contribution to the kingdom. So many people were blessed. Their lives were full. But their personal bank accounts may not have been. Now, there are other Christians that God does bless with enormous wealth. But for these people, their main goal in life is not to enrich themselves. I think of R.G. Letourneau. Letourneau had a little business. His business made over a billion dollars in profit in 1938. But years earlier, he had decided to give away 90% of his income. Letourneau said, it's not how much of my money I give to God. It's how much of God's money I keep for myself. Someone asked him, how he was able to give away such enormous sums of money. He said, well, really, it's pretty simple. He said, I just keep shoveling the money out to other people, but God keeps shoveling it back, and he's got a bigger shovel than I do. That's how it works. Look, I think that like these Christians, Paul believed that generosity is just one tangible way to be the church. It's one way that we can express our love for God and our love for others. In fact, Paul thought that generosity was actually an indicator of the presence of God's love in our lives. Look at what he said to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. He said, I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Now, he's talking about comparing it to the example of love that had been demonstrated by the Macedonians. See, generosity is like a barometer that reflects the sincerity of our love. I think Paul would say this. Paul would say, do you want to know if you, if you truly love God and, and love other people? Then check your bank statement. That'd be a really good place to start. So what about us? I believe 
that this is what God is doing. God wants to share the riches of his blessing with other people, believers and non-believers, and he wants to use your generosity to do that. He's the one that's supplying it. You get to be involved. So when it comes to giving in the kingdom, we shouldn't have to be begged to participate. We should be the ones doing the begging. We should be saying, God, give me the privilege of joining you in what you're doing. Use my life, not somebody else. Use my life. That's how we should think about generous giving. So look, maybe you would want to join me. As I've engaged with God's word this week, this is how I've been led to pray personally. I'm saying this. God, give me a generous heart. Allow me to excel in this grace of giving. Bless me. Bless my life, God, so I can be a conduit of your blessing to others. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge that you're the great giver. You, you own everything, and you've been so kind to share some of it with us. And Lord, we know something of who you are. We know your character. We want to be involved in your ministry to the world and to the church, expressing your love, your mercy. So help us, God, knowing that, to, step in, in a, to get in step with your spirit. I pray that every one of us would one day be able to hear you speaking to us about our lives and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. May it be so in our lives and in the life of our church. Amen.